You're listening to Ladies Do Podcasts, the monthly podcast to accompany the Ladies Do Comics meeting in East London and other venues. I'm Alex Fitch, and in this episode, you'll hear a pair of recordings from two Ladies Do Comics meetings featuring curators and editors of comic book anthologies and festivals. Later in the show, Selena Locke and Jay Eels, editors of the Girly Comic and previous committee members of the Caption Festival in Oxford, will be talking about their work. Before that, Charles Hatfield, an American lecturer in comics and author on books Alternative Comics and the work of Jack Kirby, will be talking about his career so far. I've been reading ladies' blogs for a few weeks, trying to get a sense of how things happen here, and what the etiquette is. Uh, I, I needn't have worried. You know, I'm having a wonderful time. It's a very supportive group. Uh, I'm just going to talk about my job, I, I, the facets of it. I can hardly hope to match the, the power of the preceding speakers. Um, I'm going to talk about what I do uh, and how that works in the classroom and how it leads to publication uh, as well. I'll say more about that cover later. <laughs> uh, I'm a professor of English uh, who teaches and researches comics uh, and who is committed to developing the fairly new academic field of comic studies and who likes nothing more than to hop over disciplinary boundaries and discuss comics with scholars who happen not to be professors of English. So I consider myself very fortunate to be able to describe myself this way. And I also think myself fortunate to be doing a kind of uh, research tour uh, of Britain this summer, since the UK has become such a very important nexus for comic study in the academy. Um, so I, I feel uh, doubly fortunate. I haven't been to the UK since the happy year I spent studying here at the University of Stirling almost 25 years ago, at a time when neither I nor most other people envisioned such a thing as a thriving field of academic comic study. Um, so I want to thank you all for having me here and to Nicola and Sarah and all of you for um, helping me get this tour off to a, I'll say a very welcoming start. So I'm a professor. What does it mean to profess comics? I'm a believer in trying to demystify these jobs. Uh, so I hope you'll indulge me for a few minutes. I'll describe my job, and, and hopefully it won't be what uh, Pete Townsend once called one ginormous ego trip. <laughs> so first and foremost, I teach. Uh, of course, I'm not a full-time comic specialist. I'm rather a teacher who happens to tackle comics amongst other subjects. Uh, and I work at this school, California State University Northridge, which is a suburban university campus in greater Los Angeles, uh, one that prioritizes teaching over research. Northridge, uh, or CSUN, as we often call it, CSUN, uh, is strongly orientated toward undergraduate instruction. And in this sense, it's typical of the California State University system, um, which comprises Northridge and 22 other campuses across the state. Uh, this is one of the largest schools in that system. It's got a diverse student population, somewhere between 30 and 35,000 students. And I can't tell you exactly how many because the fiscal crisis in my state, uh, in California, causes us to lurch unpredictably from growth to contraction, up and down, up and down. During any given semester, I can't tell whether we're in growth mode or retreat. Uh, but it is a large school. Right? 
um, and a kind of index of the current economic problems both in uh, the United States and in California in particular. Right? Almost all the students at this school are commuters. Very few live in residence halls. My son Cuomo was an exception at one point. He lived in a residence hall for a couple of years, but it's quite uncommon uh, at the, the school. Uh, geographic dispersion and a lack of personal connection to the campus are parts of this university culture. So as a teacher, this is one of the things that you try to have to, that you have to try to work around. You have to try to bring students together despite the, these factors. I've had people who identify as graduating seniors who don't know where the stairwells and elevators or lifts are. Right? Again, people are not often connected. So that's part of the nature of my school. So as a professor of English, I teach in what is a very large department in my school. Though, thank goodness, most of our classes are fairly small and intimate. Um, they're not what I call coliseum courses, which can be very alienating. Uh, typically, I teach four classes of about 35 students each in the fall semester from August to December, uh, and another four classes of the same size in the spring from January to May. I teach a wide range of courses. Now, for the past decade, I've developed a new course syllabus almost every term. Uh, some of the topics I've taught include uh, studies in popular culture. The horrible thing about this blog is that the banner image dates so quickly. <laughs> okay. Studies in popular culture, children's culture and the mass media, uh, the Arabian Nights, uh, fantasy literature and the art of world building, which is a subject that's dear to me, and recently, the comic book superhero. Every year for the past seven, I've taught uh, another comics course titled simply Comic Books and Graphic Novels. Uh, we call it English 333 because it's worth half an antichrist, or at least that seems to be the joke <laughs> around the hallways. I developed this course for Northridge from scratch, first in an experimental capacity, and then as a full-fledged regular course so that it becomes a permanent part of the unique catalog. And what this means bureaucratically, is that you're shepherding reams of paperwork, not once but twice, um, through um, multiple rounds of review. And it's very strenuous process. Uh, now, I could have taught comics occasionally under the rubrics of other existing courses, and I have done that. I've done that as well. Um, but I wanted to create a dedicated comics course that would outlast me, something that would always appear in the catalog and that others potentially could teach as well. So I tried to make this language as expansive as I could so that people who are interested in things that I'm not as interested in teaching might be able to wrench the course in that direction if they so desire. So, so far, no one else but me has taught it. They think of it as Hatfield's course. Uh, but the idea is to make something permanent. Uh, this is curricular development, uh, which means running a gauntlet of essentially conservative policy. Right? The institution is quite resistant to curricular change, so you have to do things in a very precise way. Um, and it's probably more information than you expected or wanted about the bureaucratic life of my school. Uh, but to me, this is an important topic. That's why I, I bring it up, because developing permanent, not ad hoc, not temporary, but permanent courses in comic studies is a crucial step, I think, to developing um, the field academically. And it's one in which I can make some kind of difference. Uh, my friend and colleague, Rusty Wittick, the author of Comic Books is History, once said to me that uh, being a comic scholar is like being committed to a perpetual, you know, lifelong independent study. Um, and that's not only because comics demand that we jump over disciplinary borders like art, um, literature, communication, and so on, uh, but it's also because, with few exceptions, 
there have not been regular, steady opportunities for students to take courses in or to receive formal mentorship in comic studies. Um, and one result of this that I've noticed over the past few years is that bright and engaged and promising students, both undergraduate and graduate students, um, and sometimes faculty as well, have been reinventing the wheel, as it were. They broach uh, topics in comic study as if, those as if those topics have never been broached before, even when, in fact, they have been. And to me, this is a bit of a problem. You, know, right? uh, you can often tell that people are struggling because of this lack of uh, formal degree programs or, or of a very focused literature. And, and so um, they may present uh, ideas you know, that I heard in conference a dozen years ago. Um, and we'd like to help people move beyond that. So I would say that in the Anglophone uh, uh, academic world, until very recently, particularly the last three or four years, um, we've lacked a range of well-produced journals, obviously that's changed, and we've lacked a slate of well-publicized conferences that I can refer my students to. Right. Those are the kinds of things that help a field focus, uh, and they're also the kind of things that help you alert students to the fact that there is already a conversation going on. There's already an intellectual exchange uh, which they can build on, not simply repeat, uh, but build on. So until fairly recently, comic studies has lacked both recurring opportunities for teaching and a professional literature about teaching, although, thank goodness, that is beginning to change. This is one sign of that, published by the Modern Language Association last year, uh, this volume, Teaching the Graphic Novel. Um, it says a lot about classroom practice, um, with teachers teaching various kinds of comics from, from myriad perspectives. And I'm proud to have a piece in that. It was a long time coming. You know, so apart from my own research, which of course feeds into and is informed by my teaching, I'm also interested in this curricular development and also what I would call institutional development. The institutional development uh, was my motive for helping organize the annual International Comic Arts Forum, or ICAF, uh, for 12 years. It's still going on now, but my tenure ended in 2009. Um, and also institutional development is what um, inspired me to join the executive committee of the Modern Language Association's new discussion group on comics and graphic narratives. Um, and we'll be presenting our second slate of papers in Seattle in January. Uh, institutions like these are necessary in order to encourage people to come out of the woodwork and to talk to one another, uh, secure in the knowledge that they will receive due recognition for the work that they do. Okay. So here in the UK, when I see the range of comic studies journals uh, produced here, um, okay, all, all recently launched, uh, you had a blog post about this where you indeed mentioned all three of these. Yeah, European Comic Art and Studies in Comics and the Journal of Graphic Novels and Comics. When I see this, when I consider the number of people I know uh, in the UK who are teaching comics, when I anticipate the Manchester Conference in a couple of weeks, uh, all that makes me feel amazed and very glad, right? Because uh, I can see that this field has become much more robust and welcoming than it was even a decade ago. A decade ago when I took my job at Northridge, uh, teaching children's literature primarily, I hope that I might be able to sustain comic studies as an acceptable sideline. Right? Instead, what's happened is that it's much more than a sideline. It's sort of become the spine of, of it, the spine of all my research and much of my teaching. Um, so it's like surfing some cresting wave, uh, and that's a very good feeling. It's a very different feeling than the feeling I had when I 
I'll say the job market more than a decade ago. Right? Um, I've been bringing more comics instruction into my work uh, besides that per perennial 333 course. I often teach other courses that involve comics and comics theory, courses like picture book theory, um, or this one, literature and the visual arts, which I think was two years ago, um, as well as various undergraduate and graduate seminars. And I've been including more comics in other courses too, like our standard children's literature survey, or our popular course in literature and film. And I know that this boost in comics teaching is not just a personal thing and it's not just a local thing. It actually represents a kind of international groundswell or a general acceleration in comics studies and comics teaching. So again, I do feel as if I and comic studies have been um, riding some kind of wave. And scholarship in the UK um, has had an awful lot to do that with that, both within and without uh, the academy. Uh, People like Paul, people like Roger, the work that they've done, Martin Barker, Mel Gibson, Julia Round, Chris Murray, and others. Um, it's been very encouraging. So, uh, I mean, aside from the teaching and the institutional development, I also write about comics, of course. And this is what effectively balances my teaching. Uh, and this is the thing about academia to me, again, to try to demystify it a bit. You know, um, it is, a, I guess, a profound vocation for me, but it's also simply a job. And one of the things that's nice about the job for me is that it calls on several overlapping sets of skills uh, and several distinct but complementary kinds of activity. Some of those are always public, like teaching you know, or, or speaking, uh, as I am now. Uh, some of them are private activity, like what I call the monastic bits, right, where I get to hunker down and write. Um, and so the teaching is what keeps me responsive um, and on my toes. It forces me to extemporize and adapt a lot. Um, you know, keeping it real, as the cliche goes. Uh, but the research allows me to go into a hermetic retreat and think about things, and it seems that I really thrive on having those two things together. So from a selfish point of view, those two different but overlapping kinds of activity um, really help me. Again, I seem to thrive on that. So one of the things I tell my students very often is, um, if you're in academia, you get to be both a hermit and a social animal. In fact, you're kind of required to be both at some point. Uh, uh, and that's brilliant, you know, those two things counterbalance each other uh, beautifully. So in terms of my own research writing, uh, I've got three strands that I can identify currently. Uh, one of them focuses on independent and alternative comics, uh, of small press comics and the like, and that's the topic of my uh, PhD dissertation here, um, which after a lot of fiddling and updating and uh, cross-country move uh, and other things, became my first book in 2005, my first and thus far only book. Uh, I chose the images for the cover, but I hate the type design on the top with its faux Superman type, and I've received a lot of ribbing <laughs> because of that. Um, I chose three self-reflexive images from, uh, uh, about comics making, uh, and I was very happy that they included all my choices. Uh, but you know, I really hate the cover. I, I love the inside of the book, though, the two-column design and the way they've dealt with the text and incorporated the illustrations really uh, reads well. But I just have to say that because as soon as my book was solicited, people went on the Comics Journal message board and talked about you know, what crap the cover was. <laughs> you know, let's just say that my press alternates between the good and the crap, but they're getting very much better um, in terms of design sensitivity. And comics audiences do judge a book 
client's cover, right? It's important. It's a design-centric field, right? It's about mobilizing graphic design for the sake of storytelling. And therefore, if the graphic design is dodgy, then some people will make quick judgments. Uh, but otherwise, I'm very proud of the book, um, uh, though I'm sure I would write it much differently uh, where I could be writing it now. Um, it took five years to get that from the dissertation to the book stage. My last revision was adding the date of Will Eisner's death, in parentheses, uh, which occurred in 2005. For those of you who know his work, a little grand old man of comics, that was a bitter revision. Obviously, the book was on the burner for too long. Um, the second strand in my work, aside from alternative comics, goes in a quite different direction toward comics that are more fantastical in nature. Right? Uh, and that's leading to my forthcoming book, due in January, right? uh, called Hand of Fire, uh, the comics art of Jack Kirby. Uh, Kirby, of course, the sort of quintessential American mainstream comic book artist. And I'm, I'm very interested in Kirby, have been for most of my life. Uh, his cartooning, his imagination, um, and the genres that he helped to found or rejuvenate, and that includes, obviously, the, uh, the comic book superhero. I'm embedded in that whole tradition. I'm a near lifelong reader of fantasy and science fiction. It comes, um, it comes naturally. So I'm really uh, stoked about going to that British Library exhibit on SF that's going on right now. Uh, and also, because of my recent teaching of cultural studies methodology, um, including fandom studies, I found new perspectives to go back to and study the superhero from a kind of reception angles or political angles or uh, ideological angles. Um, you can see uh, a preview of the superhero syllabus in one of those handouts, right? Um, a brief course synopsis. The full syllabus ends up online these days. They discourage us from photocopying. So I always give people something on the first day so they can decide whether they want to stay or jump ship, right? Uh, and the other flyer that went around is for my perennial comics and graphic novels course, um, which this past time around was devoted almost exclusively to putatively non-fiction comics, such as the True Life Promise that we heard about earlier this evening. I was looking for a tonic change after I taught the comic book superhero the previous semester, so I decided to swing from one um, you know, position to another. A third strand in my research concerns the reception of comics in children's culture. That is, how comics participate in larger depictions of childhood and how the children's literature field struggles to exclude, or more recently, to include comics as a genre. It's remarkable, you know, there are so many people in academia who um, think of children's comics as a newly discovered genre, mm -hmm. as if it was something that, that didn't exist. Um, um, there's been a kind of wave of, of legitimizing or gentrifying children's comics, certainly in the U.S., uh, and um, children's literature is one of my other specialities, so I find that I can play a useful role in trying to bridge what have been thus far two pretty distinct scholarly communities. Uh, so for the Oxford Handbook of Children's Literature, recently released, I um, uh, wrote a chapter on uh, Peanuts by Charles Schultz, uh, thinking that comics like that ought to be represented. When they asked me what I would like to do, I said, I want to do comics, and I want to do comics about kids. Um, and the most recent publication in this area is a chapter on the graphic novel that I did for Keywords, uh, Keywords for Children's Literature, published by New York University Press just this past few weeks. Uh, this is modeled on the famous Raymond Williams text, Keywords, where he takes disputed or controversial words in cultural studies um, and provides a history or genealogy for the words and their usage. So this book, Keywords, 
addresses everything from um, childhood, picture books, um, uh, coming of age tales, questions of gender, and, and G for graphic novel. It's designed like a dictionary, so G for graphic novel, and they asked me to do that. So uh, that was fun. I got to muddy the waters a bit. Right? Uh, I do a lot of writing that's not academic in nature, although that has tapered off a bit due to scheduling reasons. I don't see that as radically different from the academic writing, but the primary audience that I envision has to be a little bit different. I, I used to write a lot for the Comics Journal, um, not so very much since my move. Um, the Jack Kirby Collector and other uh, zines like that uh, as well. And I'm now blogging with uh, uh, a few other blokes at um, thepanelist.org where we hold forth an opinionate about comics. My review of Chester Brown's new book will appear tomorrow. And so, for those of you like me who are hot for the work of Chester Brown, speaking of autobiographical comics. So what ties all of these different kinds of writing together for me are four common concerns uh, of mine. Uh, one is form, of course. I admit it, I'm an old-fashioned formalist. I like nothing more than analyzing the structural aspects of a comic strip or comics page. Um, I'm fascinated by page layout. Uh, I'm fascinated by the tension or play between the, the linear and the tabular reading, right? Uh, between reading and sequence versus just gazing at the whole page. I'm smitten with text-image relationships, tensions, contradictions, ironies. Um, these are all things that formalists in comic studies are, are used to concentrating on. So I'm with Art Spiegelman with, on this one, who says that uh, comics are not meant simply to be read, but to be reread. Right? There's a density to the comics page, which I find kind of hypnotizing. Uh, this is a page from Spiegelman's In the Shadow of No Towers, uh, which definitely demands to be reread. It's an oddly stacked and, again, very dense page. Um, so I can always be relied upon to harangue my students, you know, learn the formalist toolbox, learn the terms, reread, you know, be particular. Uh, so form is an abiding concern of mine, as it is for many, I think, in the field. Secondly, uh, among my four, I'd say, overriding concerns, is just the notion of cartooning. I've become obsessed with the idea of cartooning as narrative drawing. Jack Kirby here, New Gods number seven, early 70s. I've become obsessed with this, and this idea of cartooning as uh, a distinct discipline, as narrative drawing, um, really came into focus for me when I read the coda to Terry Grinstein's book, the system of comics, um, as a, almost an afterthought, he says several brilliant things about cartooning as, as an act uh, or as an art form. Um, that's not where the main interest of that particular book is, but he says some things that are very useful and were very useful to me when I was doing the Kirby book, um, thinking about simplification, typification, exaggeration, thinking about the rhetorical function of the image, what sets cartooning of this kind apart from illustration in the traditional sense. And that helped me greatly when it came simply to thinking about drawing. Right. Um, and so uh, that's something that I've been quite preoccupied with recently. The third overriding interest is the one of genre. Right. Uh, this is from Scott McCloud here. What is comics? Uh, and he posits his famous uh, formal definition of, of comics, um, though I doubt he'd use the word genre to describe it. Um, Genres among one of the, the many terms, I suppose, you could use to describe comics. I've come to understand that genres are socially constituted, right? 
they're defined as much by social function or cultural positioning as by formal components. So if you're trying to define alternative comics or autobiographical comics or uh, children's comics, superhero comics, what have you, uh, you have to look at the reading culture. You have to look at the culture of reception. Who are the readers? Why do they prize this material? Where are they coming from? And this has helped me sidestep uh, the kind of discussions I used to get entangled in, what I think of as unproductive blind alleys of discussion. Uh, for instance, the endless hair splitting about, you know, what is comics? What is or is not uh, comics? So, you know, I am a formalist at heart. Uh, I love to rack up, you know, formal terms and definitions and components. I love that toolbox stuff, right? Uh, but I've learned to define genres by what their community of readers say. Or maybe not to define them, but to think critically about what the communities are saying, right? Uh, for the comic book reader who emphatically maintains that manga is not comics, a position that makes no sense to me, right? I have to try to understand what the terms of that exclusion are. What is it that, that drives them? This comes from rhetorical genre theory, and it's really from the study of rhetoric, a recent study of rhetoric. Um, it, it helps me understand things like the unique culture of comic book shops, right? Which is not the only place that comics can be found, but it's a unique and interesting culture. Um, or the term graphic novel, so useful, so evasive, so hard to pin down, so inaccurate, so necessary, such a pain, right? <laughs> but the term testifies to a history, uh, a need for legitimization, a kind of consecration. And if you think about the audience, uh, as well as the media that covers that audience, you can understand why the term has its uses. Uh, so in terms of genre, I tend to talk more than I used to about um, culture and economy, right? I mean, really, at the end of the day, I still want to get down and talk about panels, word balloons, and drawings. That's, that's what makes it work for me. But uh, the ability to sidestep some of these other discussions has been quite useful. So I try to put my formalist tendencies under some social or ideological pressure and analyze that way. So contra Scott McCloud, um, and this is uh, an argument that was crystallized for me by Eddie Campbell, I agree with Eddie on this, that the formalism alone cannot help us understand comics in the context of their history and use. If you have a page in a comic paper or a newspaper uh, where some of the imagery is in multiple panel form and others in single image form, and you insist that some of the things on that printed surface are comics and others are not, even though almost every general reader refers to it as the comics page. That seems odd to me. Uh, so uh, that's where that concern with genre comes in. Um, the last, the fourth and last of my overriding concerns, this is uh, perhaps more of a case of me as an academician talking to other academicians, which is the case of uh, the, the question of disciplines. What constitutes a discipline like a program in history or philosophy or cultural studies or literature, right? The idea that comics make it impossible to maintain these distinctions is what I love about comics. Hence this mouthful of a term, interdisciplinarity, because that's the essential condition of doing any academic work on comics. We were in um, Waterstones the other day. Uh, you have to go, you know, Britain's largest bookstore. You know, so, yeah, we went there, and it was great. I took a picture of the Dalek in the science fiction section. That was great. Uh, but what killed me about it is that, and this is true of the entire history, certainly of English literature, probably other literatures as well, is that the way in which works are racked or sorted and physically placed in an environment is part of what creates a sense of genre. So if you go into Waterstones, you'll see that literary criticism, which... I suppose my book, Alternative Comics, is trying to be, because the subtitle is An Emerging Literature. Literary criticism is on the first floor. Cultural studies is on the fourth floor. 
that doesn't make sense to me. I understand why that's done, right? But I would want to efface or erase that distinction, right? I would want to maintain that literary studies is a subset of cultural studies, a not popular view necessarily with everybody. But see how the physical layout of the store, which requires you going up three floors, separates uh, a book on uh, popular music uh, from a book about theater or a book about poetry, right? That's a disciplinary question because we make pigeonholes in which we place objects of knowledge, right? So again, part of the trauma comics for me and the potential, besides the great pleasure that they give, just to me as a reader, is that they do require you to, to overleap some of these disciplinary distinctions, cultural studies, literature, art and art history, media, communication, book studies, print studies, graphic design, journalism, sociology, philosophy, right? Um, Medicine, right? Medicine, right? Um, just came back from the comics at Medicine Conference. Um, um, as well as other issues, social issues, some of which uh, that we've alluded to this evening. So I have colleagues in comic studies, uh, in philosophy departments, American studies, rhetoric, uh, even a, a colleague in anthropology who uses anthropological method to study uh, commercial comics production. Right? So that interests me, right? And it's a determination of mine to hop over these fences and have discussions with people who, again, who are not literature professors, like myself, right? Um, one of the things that bothers me is a tendency in a lot of academic comic study that comes from programs like mine, literature programs, is the neglect of the visual, right? On the other hand, another thing that bothers me greatly is the insistence, which I often hear from artists and art historians, that comics cannot be literary because the literary cannot make room for the visual, I think that's manifestly false. I mean, there's many, many traditions of the visual in literature uh, that would put the lie to that. So what I'm interested in, as I wrote about recently for Transatlantica, which is essentially uh, a bilingual journal for, um, primarily for French scholars in American studies, right? this special issue on comics that they did recently, uh, what I wrote about there is this proposition that comics might in fact um, challenge the entire way that academia compartmentalizes knowledge. Right? It might pose a useful challenge in terms of what some people call the ecology of knowledge. What rules do we follow? What disciplinary barriers are we supposed to observe? What, are, what boundaries are we supposed to respect? Um, uh, the condition that I look forward to is, uh, with a nod to uh, King Crimson, <clears throat> is uh, indiscipline. Uh, a great name, a great title, I think. Um, which I borrowed, shamelessly. So besides the pleasure of comics, the, the ability uh, to think outside of our respective sort of professional boxes, I think is one of the great advantages intellectually here. It's the salutary challenge of comics, right? People for so long have said that the comics weren't sophisticated enough to actually bear up under you know, academic analysis, but the truth is the way academia divides knowledge is not sophisticated enough to come to terms with comics, right? Um, so you have to be able to leapfrog those boundaries. So, you know, in conclusion, I consider myself very lucky to study and teach this stuff, uh, and also because comics, in turn, have given me a way to question academic practice, right? Uh, I doubt I would have continued in academia and finished my degree if not for comics. I needed comics to be there for me, to encourage me during the dissertation process, which was unprecedented for me and very grinding. I needed them then and I treasure them now because they allow me to elude pigeonholing uh, and, and to keep things fresh and alive. And so that's 
you know, when I think of professing comics, that's what it means to me. Thank you for your indulgence. For more information about the work of Charles Hatfield, please go to www.tinyurl.com stroke Charles Hatfield. I'm Nicola Streeton, speaking from Ladies Do Comics London, resuming in the August uh, meeting. Uh, Ladies Do Comics I run with artist Sarah Lightman, and we're very pleased to welcome tonight Jay Eels and Selena Locke. Well, thank you very much. Um, obviously, I'm the J half, and we are sometimes known as the J Selena being because we tend to blur into each other. So we will probably be dancing backwards and forwards as we go, try, try to go chronologically through what we've done. Um, fact of fiction started when we both got together, um, and I dragged Selena along to her first comic convention in Bristol in 1999. Um, at the time, I was doing Doctor Who fan fiction. Um, and by hook or by crook ended up publishing it, um, mostly using Doctor Who novelists and fan writers across the internet, and most of my comics artist friends who mostly were 2000 AD artists. Um, we launched Walking in Eternity as the first thing with a fact of fiction brand on it, which was basically Doctor Who, but ignoring all of the continuity. If you wanted to have Pierce Brosnan as your Doctor Who, you could have Pierce Brosnan. Okay. Um, we got people like uh, the illustration on there is Fraser Irving, um, back before he was uh, the Fraser Irving. Um, uh, yeah, and then um, walking in a turn, he was just, just mad. I mean, how many impossible things can you believe before breakfast was the touch lag. Um, what can we do now? This was a photo from that very first Bristol. Uh, Selena is hiding in the background and I am looming like lurch. Um, and then at that particular event there was another comic that a friend of mine was printing called Violent and that was the first cover and um, it started out with me intending to be involved but as it's usually the way when you're a, a comic writer and not an artist um, things took a little longer to get through than I thought they would and um, so I, I was given an idea of what I should write which ended up I think being the plot to Westworld or Future World called How to Kill Your Heroes um, which was somebody else's idea, and the publisher said, it's a great idea, but he's disappeared off the face of the planet. You do it. So I did it, and I illustrated it, and it was appalling. Um, and then two weeks before printing, the uh, original person came up and went, how could you steal my idea? It's brilliant, and, you, and it's totally original, and you've stolen it, and, and that's it. So uh, it got pulled, thank goodness. So there's only one copy of that, and I have it. Um, and then um, we move on. To Selena. Okay, so as Jay said, the very first comic convention I went to was Bristol 1999. Um, and I didn't really read comics before I met Jay. He just kept giving me comics <laughs> until he found one that I liked, uh, which happened to be Strangers in Paradise, was the first thing that got me really started on buying comics myself and finding ones that I particularly liked. Um, and at Bristol 99, um, there were, we were helping out at the 2000 AD fanzine stall. And then at uh, Bristol 2000, um, we were launching a, a Doctor Who fanthology. And then at 2001, we launched the Walking in Eternity fanthology. 
And on the drive home from Bristol 2001, I went, oh, we're not launching anything next year. I know, I'll do a comic. <laughs> um, and this was partly in response to, um, I found the comic conventions really friendly, particularly the 2000 AD people we already knew, but there wasn't much that appealed to me at the actual conventions that I wanted to read. Um, and at that time, the indie press was very hidden, so we, I didn't really know it existed. Um, so what, they weren't really present at the conventions at that time. It was going through a bit of a low dip. So at Bristol 2002, we launched the Girly Comic. And um, the reason it's called the Girly Comic is because I kept talking about things like Strangers in Paradise as being girly comics. And all of the male comic uh, fans that I knew that also read them kept telling me off for calling them girly. <laughs> and therefore I went, right, I will do a girly comic. Um, and so that's where the name came from. So it's a bit of a joke to a certain extent. Um, when I first thought of it, I thought, oh, right, yeah, we'll have all female writers and all female artists. And then I sat back and thought, I don't actually know any female comic creators at that point in time. Um, and I also thought, well, actually, a lot of the comics I'm reading that I do like that have good female characters are by men. So why should I say they can't write for women? Um, and so instead of being all female creators, what we've got is all female main characters. That is what the girly um, uh, tag means. So all of the strips, um, it's an anthology comic, so lots of short strips by lots of different people, but they all have to have a female main character. Um, and originally it was going to be a black and white comic with a black and white cover, because at the time, you know, um, I just stopped being a student and we couldn't afford too much. And then Simon Fraser, 2000 AD artist for Nicolai Dante, sent me that gorgeous first cover, the big image, um, in colour. And I thought, oh, I don't really want to grayscale it. Uh, so I then used my graduate loan to buy a colour laser printer. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend that as a way of getting started in publishing comics. It worked well for us, but you know, I wouldn't recommend it. And then there we've just got a couple of examples of some of the later covers that we have from various people. So the, um, the top one there is uh, by a guy called Des Taylor, who did several things for us. Um, and this one here is by Asiya Alfazi, who you may have heard of. She's working on a um, graphic novel at the moment. Um, and she also was part of a Birmingham group of creators um, that were going through a course, and I can't for life me remember what the group was called, but she was one of the ones that came out of it. Um, Laura Howell was another person that came out of it, and they were looking for places to submit their work while they were on the course and coming out of the course. Uh, and so Gurley was one of the places quite a few of them submitted, so we were really lucky to have them um, sending us work. Um, oh, I don't know what's quite happened to that image that side there. Never mind. Um, you can't talk about the Gurley comic without talking about Lee Kennedy, um, because Lee is um, the only person that has work in every single issue of the Gurley comic. Um, some of you may not have heard of her because she's very much a small press creator. Um, I think she deserves a much wider audience personally. Um, she's um, been cartooning for a long time. She originally comes from New York, so she tends to do strips, so like Indian Bones on the side there, that's autobiographical strips about her childhood in New York, being brought up as a, in a quite strict Catholic family and going to Catholic school, and so there's quite a lot of uh, amusing anecdotes that she tells. You can't quite see this side as well, but this was 
Ultra Scan, which is one of her more recent comic strips, um, which is more about dealing with your body as it gets older um, and uh, dealing with health issues and things like that. And she's, I, I mean, I personally think she's a wonderful cartoonist. She's very honest, very funny. Um, and if you're interested in her stuff, she goes by Crazy Crone um, on Live Journal, where she puts up daily um, doodles and comics. And she's also on Twitter. And um, she was about to have a collection come out from an indie press um, called Slab of Concrete, but they went bust just before we bought out the girly comic. Um, so because she'd got this huge amount of work that she got ready for that publication that didn't happen, she sent us loads and loads of stuff for the girly comic. So she's a great big supporter of ours. And we got kudos for publishing Lee because those people who did know about her, you know, really loved her stuff. And then, um, obviously, the, so there are a huge amount of creators in the Girly comic, because we did 21 issues overall. Um, so there's like nearly 100-odd creators. So I can't name all of them, obviously. Um, but I wanted to just use a couple of examples to show the breadth of type of people that we would get. So on um, that side, Promise, that's Jocelyn Fenton, who you may have um, come across. She now does an online comic called Hemlock. Um, when we published Jocelyn, she was either 16 or 17. So she was our youngest um, contributor that we had during the, the Girly comic. And then on this side, um, Dorothy Leonard Investigates was written by a guy called James Peaty, who does some things for DC and 2000 AD, etc. And he sent us the script and we said, oh, that's great. Um, and he said, who are you going to get to illustrate it? And we said, well, we're not sure yet. We'll have to see who's available. And he went, well, I've just been working with John Stokes, who I didn't know who that was, but apparently he is very well-known elder statesman of British comics. I nearly um, fell off my chair when yeah. I heard the name. <laughs> yeah. In fact, um, I did say, well, it'd be very nice if we could get John Stokes to illustrate it. And so James went, I'll ask him. And he said, okay, I'll do it. So this is actually, you know, a professional comic artist that just because it was something different, the kind of thing that you wouldn't normally get to do, he was quite happy to illustrate for a small press. Okay, um, this is uh, just to focus on me for a second, <laughs> you know, means I'm up here talking. Um, as well as editing the Girly comic, the original plan for the Girly comic was that I would write an awful lot of it as well. Um, but the reality is when you're editing an anthology and trying to bring out three or four issues a year, you just don't get time. So I think I've, I wrote something like four or five strips out of the whole of the 21 issues. Um, so these are a couple of the ones um, that I did. So When Toilets Attack is still one of my uh, favourite strips that I've written. And um, I must say, Toby Ford, the artist, went above and beyond, I think, in drawing used, con uh, used tampons um, as a male artist. And uh, a few other people have gone, oh, I don't know how he could do that. Um, but he thought it was great and found it very funny. And on this side, this is another one that I wrote. Um, this was originally an entry for the Observer... Um, short comic strip um, competition. Obviously it didn't get anywhere, but this is illustrated by um, Ian Coulbard, Ian J. Coulbard, who does a lot of self-made hero things when he was just starting to come back into comics. So I was really pleased that I managed to get him to illustrate something for me. Okay, and now back to um, Jay. Okay, well back to me. When what happened was with Violent is uh, the original publisher um, got less and less time to actually print issues. And at the time we were getting Girly out, we 
well, I kept ag agitating at him because as the issues were going through, I was um, taking over violent by a, an approach of stealth or a, a viral attack. In the first issue, I was meant to be in it, but didn't. Second issue, I was definitely going to be in it, but had a falling out with the artist that was going to draw the strip because he wasn't keen on the script as I'd done it. But when I said, I don't care, I don't care, just, just, just draw it, I just want to get stuff out there. I don't mind if you want to change it. And he said, well, you know, you didn't sign on to, to have a, a co-writer, so no, I don't feel comfortable. So I approached PJ Holden, who's now better known for working for 2000 AD, I, uh, I suppose he's in fact he's doing Judge Dredd at the moment, um, and said, um, will you do it? And he said, yes, being very drunk at the time, I'll do it at the table tomorrow, don't worry about it. Um, and then realised his eyes had, and she couldn't focus on the page. But he did do it, so for issue three of Violent, the flatworm made his uh, pulp-inspired um, first appearance. And from then on, the next issue, number four, had two strips by me. Number five had three strips by me, and then the uh, original editor, Mike Sibia, just was too busy with his journalism career and Wales to do any more. And eventually I managed to browbeat him and badger him into letting us publish it. So from issue six, um, I took over the, the role and, and we started doing it through Fact of Fiction. Um, and over the, the years, it's really been, we, we hit a, I think it's actually issue three when we realised what the, the selling point of violent was, when we had um, a character who had to go undercover to Wales and um, investigate a case where you had sheep that exploded when you shagged them. It was that just kind of level of cheeky black humour and, well, is that too far? I, I don't know. No, is it far enough? So. Um, when we took over, the original editor, Mike Sivia, had time to write, and he came up with uh, this particular character, hard-boiled Hitler. And it's basically a Captain America story, but from the Nazi side. If super soldier serum was given to Hitler as an attempt to regrow his missing testicle. Um, and it just gets sillier and sillier. Um, later on in uh, the other illustration we have here, this is Space Dude. Um, by Darren Douglas. Uh, in, to jump back to the girly comic, one character that hasn't been mentioned, as, as the issues went on, we had a character called Space Girl by someone who worked for Sony as a, as a games illustrator. And at a party, um, she said, I don't know if you'd be interested in this chap, but, and then gave me a great big wad of, of pages of this strip called Space Dude, which is just phenomenal. It's, um, if it ever got to make it made into a film, Bruce Campbell has to have the lead. Um, it's set in the far future, all the women of Earth have decided that all the men of Earth are just a waste of space. They don't like them anymore, so they're going to go and find their own planet. So they all disappear, leaving all the men sulking, wandering around, going, what are we going to do? How do we get the women back? Then they notice, well, in that corner we do have some time travel technology. Why don't we go back to the 1970s where there was this famous TV series called Space Dude about the most testosterone-fueled man imaginable. We'll go back, we'll grab the actor that played Space Dude, he'll bring the women back, that's what we need. And um, unfortunately, it goes slightly wrong and they pick up his stunt double instead. <laughs> and it just gets sillier and sillier and sillier. Uh, next one. Me. Back to you. Okay, so um, from 2002 until um, 2010, we bought out 21 issues of the Gurley comic. Um, and we found that sales started to drop off because obviously people would look at the table and see so many issues. And despite telling people it was an anthology, it didn't matter which issue you picked up. 
people were kind of like, ooh, no, we don't quite know what we want. So what we decided to do um, was bring out um, a collection. So the Gurley Comic Book 1 um, is a collection of the first um, eight... Nine. Nine. The first nine issues of the Gurley Comic. Um, and that came out in 2011. Was it? 2010. Sorry, I forget my no, own. 2008. 2008? Mm -hmm. Okay. 2008. <laughs> um, along the way, for the Gurley Comic issues, we picked up nominations for the National Comic Awards, from, for the Comic Creators Guild Awards. And for the Gurley Comic 1 collected book, we also picked up um, a couple of nominations for the British Fantasy Award for Best Comic. We never won any of them. We kept being beaten by people like Neil Gaiman. You know, <laughs> but what can you do? Um, so we bought that out, and we bought it out in a limited edition hardback, which went out of print quite a while ago. So um, we've been out and we do events um, a lot, quite a lot locally in Leicester. And people kept saying, well, can we buy the Gurdy comic? And I was like, well, no, because it's out of print. So what we decided to do this year was bring it back into print as a paperback edition. So there's some of those at the back. So that's what the Gurdy comic book one is. Um, what the Gurdy comic book one and the Gurdy comic book two, which I'll talk about in a second, don't have in are the couple of things that we ran as series over several issues. So Jay mentioned Space Girl a moment ago. So that's Space Girl, that's one of the covers that Sophie did for us. Um, so um, that's by an artist called Moto Draconis. And because she bought out her own collected edition of Space Girl, we decided not to put it in the girly collected editions because you can buy it separately. And then in later issues of the Gurley comic, we were very lucky to have Terry Wiley, um, which some of you may know from Slee's Castle and Petra, etc., um, start his very new series, Verity Fair, and that originally was serialised in the Gurley comic before he brought it out as individual issues. So again, we haven't put that into the books because you can buy the issues themselves straight from Terry, and it's an ongoing series that he's still working on. Um, and, you know, I love Terry's stuff, so... I think that's great. And then hot off the press, because they arrive from the printers on Thursday afternoon, is the Girly Comic Book 2, which is what we were bringing out to launch at this event and caption next weekend. Um, and this is a collection of issues 10 to 21 of the Girly Comic, plus um, a spin-off that we did called The Knicker Draw that was edited by a friend of ours, Deborah Boyast. So that includes the Nicodraw strips and a 16-page strip that we never got a chance to use in the Gurley comic, which we've also put in. Um, the cover artist on, I didn't say, the cover artist on um, Volume 1 was Des Taylor, who did other covers for us. The cover artist on this um, book 2 is Caroline Parkinson, um, and she did a strip in book 2 called Chess for Witches. So and we liked this character, and we wanted somebody looking out and so Jay asked her to do a cover um, with that character. And the um, phones are tarot cards and the posts in the background. She's taken other characters from other strips to feature on there. And Jay does all of our designs, so he designs the logos and the covers as well. And we're running out of time, aren't we? Um, okay, so this was just, again, to pick a couple of people out. It's not very fair, because I say there are 50 creators in the Gurley comic book too. Um, but just to show a couple of the kind of things that you might get in there. You get anything in the Gurley comic from autobiography to horror um, to humour, um, all sorts of different strips, as long as they have a female main character. 
Um, these are a couple of the ones that we featured. So on that side, the monster in the well was one of the early um, things that Kate Brown did, um, who you might know from doing things for the Phoenix, the DFC, and her own um, comics. So we were really lucky to get Kate as she was on her way up through the comic ranks. Um, on this side, this is a, a strip where we have the same characters occur in a couple of different strips. Um, and I don't know if any of you are familiar with the cooking show that used to be on called um, Two Fat Ladies, where they all used to ride around on a bike together. This is kind of like the supernatural version of Two Fat Ladies. Um, Two Fat Ladies meets Ghostbusters. Yeah, because they go out and um, deal with supernatural problems. Um, and that's written by Alistair Pulling and was illustrated by Bevis Musson, um, who Bev also does his own um, comics now as well. Okay, you better read really quick on okay. the caption. Yeah. We'll just real quickly go over the caption. Caption is something that started in 1992 in Oxford by people from university, and ever, every year since then there has been another caption. It is the longest running comic convention in Great Britain, no matter what any other. Um, convention says it's captioned. Um, every year it has a theme which is just designed because an awful lot of creators go to caption so um, it's an artistically based sort of thing um, and so the theme is just something to tie everything together. Um, the two uh, big illustrations, uh, Caption Dreams and Nightmares, that was from the same year. Those illustrations are a bit dark but they're, they're Al Davison um, who comes every year to Manistall and to do workshops for us. Um, that particular year it meant he got to do a dream comic workshop and he is one of the world's biggest authorities on dream comics so it was phenomenal to get him to do that. Every year there are different guests. Um, it's, uh, one of the people who started it was Jenny Scott who's still um, game, gamely um, staying on as, um, as the chairperson of the uh, of the caption conventions despite having multiple children. I was just saying, we didn't yes. explain why we're talking about it. We, yeah. ran, we were on the committee from 2006 to 2011, yeah. so we... We'd have got there in about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> an hour, you know. Um, yeah, the, the, the six years that we did it, um, the themes were caption remix, where I just wanted people to take an idea of comics, remix it. It might be taking an issue of the Fantastic Four, rubbing out all the panels and writing new words, moving the panels around and making a new story out of it. It might be redesigning old characters for something new. Um, Dreams and Nightmares is pretty, pretty explicit. Time Warp Caption was possibly my favourite because we managed to get a lot of the people who were with Deadline magazine, which had hit an anniversary at that point. So we got um, people like Nick Abadzis and Disraeli um, to all turn up and, and talk about that. Uh, caption is Away with the Fairies was <laughs> self-explanatory. Um, Mad Science Caption was probably the one that got most artists to submit pictures. It just, it's one of those ones where you just go, yeah, I know exactly what I'm going to draw. It's a head in a jar. Um, and austerity captions seem to be appropriate last year. Um, could be the same one this year, really. But this year's one is Caption Summer Special, which is the, the stick man figure is the, uh, the icon of Caption. He, he uh, changes every year to whatever the theme is. But uh, we, we decided we'd do five years of Caption and then get out, and we managed to escape finally this year after six years, but it's one of those things where you kind of have a, a changing of the guard and it helps to keep it fresh. Um, and David O'Connell sitting in the audience there is uh, one of the new um, supremos of Caption. And it's next weekend. Yes, in Oxford. Okay. Right, actually. And that's all the information, information we have. So there's several people here who are guests next weekend. 
so if you're near enough to come to Oxford, we would really recommend it. Obviously, we're slightly biased from having run it for a few years, but we loved Caption before we stood up for the committee. And the reason we stood on the committee was because the whole committee stepped down one year, and they said, if you want Caption to carry on, we need people to step forward. And we did because we love it. We think it's a great little convention. And the, one of the best things about it for creators is that there's a communal table where you just bring your books, you leave the books on the table, Caption sells them for you, and you can go to the bar. Or probably to the panels or the workshops, but you know, mainly to the bar. For anybody that goes to a lot of conventions and sits behind tables all weekend and never gets to see anything because they're sitting behind a table on their own, that's the thing that sells caption to you. Okay, uh, okay. anything, what else I've been up to across all the years? Um, I did a comic strip um, adaptation of uh, The Water Margin, well, a bit of The Water Margin, Outlaw Woo for um, Ilya's Mammoth Book of Best New Manga for Constable and Robinson. Uh, and I managed to drag uh, Toby Ford, who'd done various strips for us in the past, to come along and help me with that. I did um, a modern-day Norse mythology thing, See a Penny, about tricks to gods, for Negative Burn, published by Image Comics, um, with Graham Neil Reed. Um, I've been writing a lot of prose fiction more recently, mostly in horror titles, Old Zombie, Terror Scribes, Terror Tales. Um, I did a science fiction story for Murky Depths, which was recommended for the British Science Fiction Association's Best Short Story of the Year. Um, and last year I was in a Doctor Who spin-off called Faction Paradox. They did an anthology called A Romance in Twelve Parts. Uh, and I did a prison story for that. And then liked it so much that when the editor said, would you like to edit the next one? I went, um, and he said, I'll pay. And I went, okay, absolutely. <laughs> and so that is just finished. I've just been announcing on the Fact of Fiction blog who all the contributors for that will be, and so that should be out in the next month. And we've been doing a lot of talking at conventions, talking at panels. Uh, there's a States of Independence uh, event that happens in Leicester every year for local um, publishers to get together and say, I'm out here, I'm doing this. Um, and they asked us to come along and, and talk about comics, because mostly it was poets. Um, and uh, we've been asked to teach a, a course on how to write comics or graphic novels um, for the... Um, writing school. Yeah. Okay. And what else have I been up to? So we kind of put the Girly Comic on hold um, after 2011, partly because I was having health issues and economic issues, and obviously because we decided to concentrate on bringing the books out. Um, and one of the things I wanted to do was write more, because obviously while I was editing, I wasn't really writing much. Um, so these are some of the strips um, that I've done in the past. Um, some, one of the most recent ones was in Ink and Paper 1 uh, with David. <laughs> and actually, Jay and I feature in Ink and Paper 2 as an interview as well. Yeah, so. we didn't realise we had to say that we were in Ink and Paper 2. Yeah. Um, and I've also been branching out into prose stories and accidentally ended up in some of the same books as Jay, simply because... I accidentally became a horror writer, which is not really what I do. Um, and I'm currently working on a novella um, for a pulp line of books called The Periodic Adventures of Senor 105, who is a masked Mexican wrestler in an alternative 1970s who goes out and fights, you know, very silly um, villains. Um, so that's what we're doing at the minute. The future for fact of fiction. Um, we are hoping to do a collection of Lee's work, so all of the things she did for the Girly Comic, plus as much of her other stuff as we can get hold of from her, because she has done a lot, um, and we're hoping to bring that out on her behalf sometime in the next year. 
um, though you know it would be lovely if she could be picked up by a bigger publisher as well. Um, why I put the Girly Comic Book 3 question mark is obviously Girly Comic Book 1 and 2 collected everything that we already had. If I decide to go ahead and do a Girly Comic Book 3, that requires um, obviously new material and trying to find lots of new contributors. And I don't know whether there's still a, um, a niche for the girly comic or whether because there are so many more female comic creators out there doing their own thing anyway, um, whether it's, it's something to do or not. So I'd be interested to hear if people had any opinions on that later on. Because obviously for the first two volumes that was ten years worth of material. Um, so to do the third... Right, okay. And that's probably uh, us having to uh, stop because we've gone over time. <laughs> For more information about the work of Jay Eels and Selena Locke, please go to fact or fictionpress.co.uk. For more information about the Caption Small Press Festival in Oxford, please go to caption.org. Ladies Do Comics, which is run and curated by Sarah Lightman and Nicola Streeton, takes place every month at the Rag Factory on Henyard Street off Brick Lane in London. The next meeting is taking place on Monday the 10th of September and guests include Richie K. Chandler, illustrator, designer and comics artist, Louise Crosby, poetry illustrator and Louisa Parker, artist. For more information about that and forthcoming meetings, please go to ladiesdocomics.com. That's L-A-Y-D-E-E-Z-D-O-comics.com. The Ladies Do Comics podcast was recorded by Nicholas Streeton and introduced and edited by Alex Fitch. And there'll be a new episode online next month. Thanks for listening.